The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that portion of scripture that we read at the beginning in the gospel according to St. John in chapter 5, directing particular attention to verses 6 to 9, verses 6 to 9 in the fifth chapter of the gospel according to St. John. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent men answered him, Sir, I have no men when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. In other words, I want to call your attention to the account which is given in this chapter of the healing of that lame and impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. This is one of the miracles worked and performed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I use my terms advisedly. It was a miracle. The Lord Jesus Christ did work miracles and they are recorded here in the scriptures. This is just one of them. There's no difficulty about that. Any man who finds any difficulty in believing in the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ is really in difficulty because he doesn't believe in God and in the divine and the supernatural. These things all go together. Now, the question that arises in our minds is this. Why did our Lord work these miracles? And why have the accounts of these miracles been recorded for us? Now, the answer to that question is given here in this particular miracle as it is given in the accounts of all the miracles as they are recorded in this gospel according to St. John. John refers to them always as signs. And that gives us the key to the understanding as to why they were ever performed and as to why the account of them is preserved for us. Primarily, the business of these miracles which were worked by the Lord Jesus Christ was to attest his person. He didn't do them merely because of his kindness and his compassion and his heart of love. His first and his primary object was to give a sign as to who he was. You'll find later on in this same chapter, in this same Gospel of John, that he turned to some skeptical and unbelieving people on one occasion and said, though you don't believe my words, believe the works. Look at the things I've been doing. The miracles were worked primarily in order that it might be plain and manifest that he is what he claims to be, the only begotten Son of God who has come down from heaven to earth. You remember what he said in reply to the two messengers sent to him by John the Baptist with the question, Art thou he that should come or do we look for another? Go back, he said, and tell John again the things which ye do see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, 
The, the deaf are made to hear, the very dead are raised, and the gospel is preached unto the poor. That's the answer. These were the signs that the prophets prophesied I would show when I came. I have come and I'm giving the signs. Go back and tell John to look at them and to consider it again. Blessed, he said, is every man that is not offended in me. Very well, there is the first thing. And of course it's all important. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ eventually depends entirely upon this as to who he is. If he is not the Son of God, we have no gospel. But if he is, and because he is, we have a gospel, a great and a glorious gospel of salvation and of redemption. Very well, there is the first uh, purpose of miracles, but it has a second purpose. Miracles observe uh, a second object, and that is to illustrate his uh, spiritual work. Now, this is again not my theory, but something that is taught very plainly in the scriptures themselves. Our Lord worked these miracles in order that people might see that what he was doing there, obviously and openly in a physical sense, he could also do and had come to do in a much greater sense, in a spiritual sense. Now, he says that in this very connection, in a very interesting manner. I read it to you as one of the verses at the beginning. In verse 20 we read this, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. He says, I'm going to do greater things than these miracles. And there he's referring uh, to the more spiritual thing. So I say that the second object is to show that what he does in the physical is but a picture of the still yet greater thing that he can do in the realm of the spiritual. So that we can always regard these miracles over and above being facts of history as being parables which preach to us and present to us the gospel of salvation. They are indeed wonderful illustrations of what our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to do for our souls. What he does there physically, he can do spiritually. There is a perfect comparison between physical disease and the disease of the soul. Indeed, there is a very intimate connection between the two. You notice that our Lord suggested to this man that all his troubles, as I'm going to emphasize, were due to his sin. He said to him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest the worst thing happen to thee or come upon thee. Sin leads even to physical diseases. There would have never been any disease in the world at all were it not that sin came in. It is the ultimate cause of all our troubles. Very well then I say as we come to look at this uh, story, this incident tonight, the working of this miracle on the men at the pool of Bethesda, let us see in it by the grace of God a wonderful picture and representation of this wondrous and glorious gospel of salvation. You know there is something even about this service tonight or any such service at any time which seems to me to be a very perfect reproduction of the picture that we are given in this very chapter. 
There you see we've got a picture. Our Lord was there in Jerusalem. And we are told that in the sheep market there was a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda. Having five porches. And in these porches lay a great multitude of impotent folk. Of blind, halt, withered. Waiting for what? Waiting for a chance, a possibility of being healed when the water in the pool was disturbed. There was a tradition. It was probably true that the first who went into the pool at that point was healed. And there they'd come and there was a great crowd of them and they'd build porches for them gathering round the pool. Hoping that perchance they might find healing. And suddenly on this occasion as they're there sitting, lying, some of them, in their utter helplessness, waiting. The Lord Jesus Christ comes. And he speaks to this particular man. And you remember what happened? The man was made whole, he was healed, he was cured. The Lord speaks to his soul. And the whole story of this man from that moment forward is entirely different and is entirely new. Now I say that if we could but realize it, what we are doing here tonight is something similar. We have come together, and we have done so for some reason. We are all aware of some need. We are in a world of tragedy. We are in a world of suffering, in a world of pain, in a world of shame. And we've come together to this place. Do you know, my friend, that you realize this? That the same possibility is here tonight as was present on that occasion at that pool of Bethesda. We have the promise of this same Lord Jesus Christ. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst. What a romantic thing it is to meet in a church. What marvelous possibilities there are. What surprising possibilities there are. Even here at this moment. Here are we, we've come in our need, and he is here. This poor man of whom we are reading and with whom we are dealing, and probably being carried there as we are told, day after day, many long years, he'd been ill 38 years, and I've no doubt that he was put there on the floor on this occasion, oh, just feeling that it was just another day like every other day. He expected nothing. But he received everything. Now I say that is the marvelous thing about meeting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Christian church. You see, because he's there, everything is possible. The last thing you'd expect may happen. The divine, the miraculous, the supernatural. My dear friend, I would ask you a simple question at this point. Do you realize the possibilities of this service? Because, though unseen, he is here amongst us, and his touch hath still its ancient power. What a romantic, what a marvelous, what a surprising thing it is to meet together in this way when the Lord Jesus Christ is present. May I ask yet another question? Have you experienced this romance? Have you known what it is suddenly to be visited by the Son of God who speaks to you and addresses you 
and who solves your problem for you and puts you on your feet? Have you experienced it? Did you know it was possible? Had you an understanding of these things? Are there any laws concerning these matters? Why shouldn't it happen to you this evening? How does it happen? How does he act? What is the whole position? Well, let us look at this together simply tonight. In order that we may see some of the principles which are taught here concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and the great and the glorious salvation that he came to bring to men and women in this sad and wretched world. Now, the matter divides itself up quite simply. I'm really trying to make nothing but a kind of running commentary this evening. The first thing we look at, of course, is the man himself. The man. Here he is, and you remember the facts about him. A certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Jesus saw him lying. Lying, of course, because he was helpless and impotent. Now, what do we know about this man? Well, the first thing we've got to emphasize about him is that all his troubles were due to sin. This 14th verse is very important. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said to him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. The thing that has come upon you is bad enough, and that was the result of your sin. Sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. Now, I'm simply taking that out as a principle in this way. All this man's troubles were the result of his sin. Now, that is the fundamental proposition of the Bible, which we can never repeat too frequently. All the ills and the troubles and the problems and perplexities and heartaches of this world of ours are all the result of sin, every one of them. Oh, but that's exaggerating. It is not exaggerating. When God made this world, he made it perfect. It was paradise. There were no problems there, none whatsoever. There was no misery, there was no unhappiness, there was no jealousy or envy, there was no heartache, there was no wretchedness, there was no death. All our troubles, every one of them, is the result of sin, of man's alienation from God, of man's rebellion against God, of man's willfulness, of man's unutterable folly in asserting his own mind and will and understanding against God and his holy ways. My dear friend, if you don't believe that, there is a sense in which all I'm going to say will be meaningless to you. That is the first statement of the Bible. We've got to understand the cause of our troubles. And they're that. It isn't that evolution hasn't gone on long enough yet. It is that man was perfect and fell. It isn't that he was created imperfect and is struggling towards perfection. It's the exact opposite. The world is as it is because of sin. And what does it lead to? Well, isn't it obvious here? Let me just pick out three things. 
Sin always leads to misery. It's obvious in the case of this poor fellow, isn't he? Isn't it? What a miserable state he was in. Impotent, helpless. And had been like that for 38 years. Not only that, he had to suffer a good deal from the selfishness of others round and about him. You remember what he says. When our Lord asked him if he'd like to be healed, the man said to him, Sir, I have no men when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another step is down before me. They were all out for themselves. Every man wanted to get first into that pool. And nobody cared very much about anybody else. The condition of these people varied a great deal. Some were worse than others. Some could still walk, uh, but were perhaps lame. Others could drag themselves. Others could crawl, as it were. But this man seems to have been about the worst of them all. And he says, many a time have I made an effort to get there, but I never could. I haven't anybody to help me. Some of these other people are wealthy people. They've got servants they can bring along. And they put them in first. I'm always pushed back. Everybody's out for himself. And there he is in his misery. Paralyzed and impotent. Suffering remorse and shame. Pain, perhaps. Realizing his paralysis. But on top of it all, this bitterness coming in. As he sees that every man's out for himself. No one had any consideration for him. No one ever said, ah, I'll stand back this time. Let this poor fellow, he's been here 38 years. Let him have a chance. Never a word. Every man for himself. The heart knoweth his own bitterness, says the Old Testament, and it does. But alas, in this sinful world, it's increased and aggravated by everybody else. And we're all the same. We're all guilty of it. Says the Apostle Paul to Titus, we were all once like that, hateful and hating one another. Every man for himself. And the result is the misery of the world. Just think of all the most miserable cases you know in the world this evening and analyze them and you'll find it always comes to that. Those two factors are nearly always there and oh, the misery that is caused in the hearts of men and women tonight simply because of this selfishness. Sin and selfishness, they go together and they lead to untold misery and unhappiness. Let me hurry to the second thing, that is, he was not only miserable, he was helpless. He couldn't move. He had to be carried. He tried to drag himself along the floor, but he couldn't get there in time. I needn't stay with this. The utter helplessness of this man is surely obvious. And don't we all know something about this helplessness? Have you ever really tried to give up a sin? Have you tried reforming your life? Of course we have. We've all done it. We've taken our resolutions. We've made our pledges. We are so ashamed when we fall, we'll say, I'll never do it again. But you've done it again. We've all done it again. We are weak. We are helpless. We can't live up to our own standards. We can't keep our own resolves and resolutions. We can't keep the Ten Commandments. We can't live the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot please God. Try as we will. Try with all your might. And the more you'll try, the more you'll discover your own impotence. And utter helplessness. 
trouble with the people who think they succeed is that their standard is so low. It isn't God's standard. It isn't even a decent human standard. The one thing to say about a person who says, well, I really am satisfied. I don't feel that I'm a sinner. I don't feel I'm a failure. The answer is the standard is so low that it's not worth attaining unto. But when you read the lives of the saints, when you look at these great characters in the scripture, when you look at the Son of God, do you still feel you've got strength and power? Do you feel that there is still some potency and vigor and dynamic in you in a moral sense? Is there anything more awful and more miserable in life than to feel this sense of helplessness? Constantly falling to the same sin, constantly failing to be what we'd like to be, even in a natural sense, helplessness. And then hopelessness. It's here, obviously, in the case of this man, isn't it? This is a very perfect picture of hopelessness. The very words that the men used in speaking to our Lord, he seems to say, how can I? I've got no men, I haven't got the money, I haven't got the means, and everybody else is there before me. How can I? What's the use of asking? Somebody else always gets in first. Complete hopelessness. And I suppose there is nothing more sad and affecting in the condition of mankind this evening than the manifestation of this self-same sense of hopelessness. You can see it on all hands. People manifest their sense of hopelessness by the things they clutch at. They'll clutch at any cult, at any teaching. They'll believe almost anything they read in a newspaper. Why? Well, they're hopeless. They've tried so many things and they lead to nothing. And then somebody says, have you tried this? And they'll go after it. They go the round of all these things, the cults and spiritism and so on. I've come across some tragic cases of this comparatively recently outside the life of this church. I can think of nothing more pathetic than that than people who are disappointed and unhappy in life, who lost a loved one or something like that, clutch at something like spiritism in some hope of being able to find a little comfort. That shows you the sense of desperation, of utter hopelessness that men and women have to try and live and eke out an existence in some such way as that. The things they believe, astrology and all these things, I'm not here to condemn them. I say that there is nothing more pathetic than this. It just shows the desperate condition of people. That's why they'd gathered around the pool of Bethesda. The story had gone around that if you did manage to get in first, you'd be healed. They came from everywhere. They'll clutch at any straw, anything that offers a hope. And that is why every latest teaching always has its followers. These poor people are always looking out for something. There is despair. There is utter hopelessness. But let me apply it in a spiritual sense. Have you realized, my dear friend, that you can never save yourself? You know, you've got to feel this hopelessness before you'll ever be a Christian. As long as a man relies upon himself and his own powers, I have no gospel for him except to tell him that he's a fool and that he's doomed to failure. 
gospel of Jesus Christ is for those who become hopeless about themselves, who pass through in some shape or form the experience that the Apostle Paul describes. To will is present with me, but how to perform I know not. For the evil that I would not, that I do, and the good that I would, I do not. With my mind I aspire after certain things. I find another law in my members dragging me down, paralyzing me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever known your own hopelessness? I say it's one of the great essentials. Face yourself and face your own life. Analyze it. I'm putting it in terms of what you know you should be and what you're trying to be. See the hopelessness and then consider God's demands and God's law and you'll realize that you'll never get there. And you'll be ready to say with Augustus, stop lady, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. I'm hopeless. Well, there is the picture that we are given of the man. Let me hurry now to look at the Lord who came to the man. A certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Let's have a look at him. This Jesus who came, the Lord. I'm simply confining myself this evening to what we are told here about him. The first thing is that he came into the midst of this scene of desolation and despair. And all I want to emphasize tonight is this. He came uninvited, unasked, unsolicited. No deputation had waited upon him to ask him to come there. Nobody had sent a message. Nobody had offered a plea. Nobody had said a word to him. He came in and of himself. He decided to go there. He came. Hold on to that. Let me expound it in a moment. And then the next thing I'm told is this, that he saw. Oh, hold on to these words. When Jesus saw him, nobody else saw him, you see. They were all so anxious to get in themselves. He was almost trodden upon Kept back by the crowd. Nobody looked at him. Everybody looked at himself. But Jesus saw him. He looked at him. He saw his condition. And then we are told that he knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He knew all about the 38 years. He not only knew about that, he knew that the man's trouble was originally due to his sin that his physical troubles even were due to his sin. And yet the whole point of this message, as I understand it, is just to say this, that though the Lord knew all this about him, he nevertheless came to him, and he spoke to him, and he healed him. He made him whole. 
He delivered it. What does it all mean, says someone? Well, my dear friend, all this being interpreted just means this. That there we've got in a pictorial form the whole message of the coming of the Son of God into this world. That's what this gospel is about. That's what the other gospels are about. That is the Christian message. It is to say this. That into this world of ours, the very Son of God has come. The one about whom I'm preaching is not a man like other men. He's not in the series with philosophers or teachers or social gospelers or anybody else. No, no. We start by saying this is the Son of God. In the beginning, says John, at the beginning of his gospel, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is the one who came to the pool of Bethesda. And you see what it is I'm anxious to emphasize this evening? Why did he come? And you know there's only one answer to that question. He came of his own free will. He came unasked. He came uninvited. He came unsolicited. Why did the incarnation take place? I say it was nothing from men's side. It was entirely from the side of God. John has already reminded us of this in the words of our Lord himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It is God who sent him. It is the Son who came. No petition from men. No request. No desire. God's action. God's initiative, as Christ went and decided to go to the pool of Bethesda, so he decided to come into the world. He left the courts of heaven, his eternal home and all its glory. He descended, he came down, he entered into the virgin's womb. He came unsolicited, uninvited. And why did he do it? And the answer is because of what he saw. You know, it's all there in the third chapter of Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And at once they began to feel miserable and unhappy and went to hide themselves. And what are we told? That God came down into the garden to them. Why? Well, because he saw them. And saw what they'd brought upon themselves. And saw the misery and the wretchedness. Why did God send his Son into the world? Why did the Son come? I say there's only one answer. Because they saw mankind in its misery, in its shame, in its helplessness, in its utter hopelessness. Saw it struggling vainly in its civilizations to redeem and to rescue itself. And seeing the failure, sent the only one who could succeed. He saw. He knew. It is God alone who really does know the truth about us and about our condition. God sees the rebellion in the human heart. He sees the vice, the malice, the perversion, the horror of it all. You and I have no conception of sin. It's God who sees what sin is and what it has meant. And yet, though he knows it all, 
as our Lord knew all about these men. He nevertheless sends his son, and the son came. Why? Well, because of his mercy, because of his compassion. That's the gospel, you see. The Son of God came into this world because the world is as it is. He said, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is the word I find everywhere in the Gospels. He was walking along. He suddenly sees a case of misery. And we are told he had compassion upon him. He'd stop. He'd speak. It doesn't matter what he was doing, however great the hurry, he always he had a heart of compassion. He saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. That's why he came, and that is why he still comes as it were. It is the mercy and the love and the compassion of God revealed in Jesus Christ. But I imagine somebody is anxious to ask this question, why did he go to that particular man? There were many there. Why did he go to this particular man? The answer is, I don't know. But he did it, you know, and that's the sort of thing he does. Is it, I wonder, because this man was the most hopeless case of all? Did he select him in order to show this, that if that man could be healed, anybody can be healed? Did he want to show that there was hope for the vilest and the most wretched? The one that's been abandoned by the world and all its sociology and its psychology and its philosophy and all its other ologies? Did he go to the most hopeless that the whole world might know forever that it doesn't matter how black a sinner is, how vile and wretched, the Son of God can save him? I don't know. But I know he does things like that. And I read the story of the Christian church throughout the centuries. And you know, I see him doing the same sort of thing. He picks out the most unexpected people. He selects the most extraordinary cases. He takes hold of men whom everybody's abandoned and everybody's forgotten. And he speaks the word. And the hopeless arises and becomes a saint. Adorning the life of the Christian church. Have you got a clear picture of this Lord? You understand why he came into this world? What's his purpose? What's his object? Not the righteous, but not the righteous sinners Jesus came to save. He says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. He comes for those who feel hopeless and utterly helpless and works his miracles upon them. Come, let me hurry to my last principle, which is this. The salvation that he brings. We've looked at the men, we've looked at the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the salvation that he brings. It's all here. Here's the first thing I notice about it. His salvation is entirely and altogether different from the world's methods. And entirely different from what the world and all of us would ever have expected him to do. Had you noticed that? You see, look at this man. Our Lord comes to him and says, Wilt thou be made whole? And there is no doubt at all about it. The man was really saying in his reply something like this. 
He says, I haven't got a man who can help me to get in there first, therefore my case is hopeless. Are you asking me your question because you are prepared to help me to get in the next time the water's troubled? Very natural, isn't it? What we all think by nature is that all we need from the Lord Jesus Christ is a little help and a little assistance. Ah, oh, we say the means of cure are there in the pool. All I need is somebody to put me in. I haven't got the money. I haven't got this or that. Are you prepared to do it? Put me into the pool. That's what we expect. You know, that isn't what he does. We think, I say, we need a little help, a little Philip, a little assistance, a little encouragement, a little instruction, an example. No, no, my friends, that isn't his method at all. That isn't the Christian message. That isn't the Christian way of salvation. Indeed, let me put it specifically in my second point by putting it like this. You notice that our Lord doesn't use the pool at all. He heals this man without the pool. The pool wasn't disturbed. And our Lord didn't help him into the pool. He just looks at him and says, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. He doesn't make any use whatsoever of the pool, which being interpreted spiritually just means this. This gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has nothing to do with human learning or philosophy or understanding. It doesn't use them at all. It's something that comes direct by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't postulate anything in men except his need, his helplessness, his hopelessness, and his despair. This isn't something that has come into the world to help men or to help the medicaments that men are already using. It acts independently of them all. Our Lord was never trained as a Pharisee. He didn't belong to the schools. And because he didn't, they said, how can this man do it? But he did it. Why? Well, he's the son of God and he acts directly. He doesn't need the pool. All that you and I have got, he can leave them entirely undisturbed. He doesn't act through politics, you know. That isn't the way the world's going to be put right. It isn't by Christianizing politics. It isn't by Christianizing education. It isn't by Christianizing industry or any one of these other things. No, no. It's this action of his in a meeting like this. He doesn't need them. He doesn't use the pool. And the third thing I notice is, that we needn't be at all disturbed or afraid that the competition of others is going to rob us in this matter. Poor fellow, he'd been there 38 years. And he said, what chance do I stand? Some of these others can rush in. Some of these others can drag themselves in. Others are wealthy enough to have servants and they can put them in. I'm at a disadvantage. The competition was too keen and he didn't stand a chance at all. Thank God. It isn't like that with regard to this Christian salvation. Nobody has an advantage here. Money doesn't help a man here. Learning doesn't. Understanding doesn't. Ah, oh, says someone, you know, I wish I'd got a great brain. I can't even enjoy the Bible. I can't read books on theology. What chance do I stand? 
you stand as much chance as the greatest brain the world has ever seen. You haven't been to the schools and the colleges. Thank God it doesn't matter here. It does in the world, of course. The more you have, the more you'll get. If you've got intellect, influence, money, they're all of great advantage. Here, it doesn't matter at all. When you come in through these doors, you come in like everybody else. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ah, but you say, surely it's an advantage to have been brought up in a Christian home. It's an advantage always to have gone to a place of worship. In some respects it is, but in this matter of salvation it doesn't help at all. It may be a hindrance. So don't tell me that somebody else, because he or she is more religious than you, has got a better chance. Ah, someone else says, now surely morality does make a difference. If you, know, if you knew what I've been, if you knew what I've done, if you knew the depths to which I've descended, why, I'm sure you'd say that I'm hopeless. Now, if I'd always lived a decent and clean and moral life like that other person, I'd see some hope. You know, that's all wrong at this point. It doesn't come in at all. There are inequalities in the world, not when you're confronted by Christ. He proves it here. It doesn't matter whether you've been the most moral, natural person the world has ever known or whether you're the vilest and the blackest sinner that ever walked the streets of London. Thank God, when you're looking into the face of the Son of God, you're both in the same level, and he can deal with both in exactly the same way. He doesn't need the methods of the world. He's not interested in our natural inequalities. No, no, these things don't come in. His method of salvation is entirely different. It's a contradiction of all we've ever thought and all we've ever imagined. But come, let me come to the second principle which follows from that. You see, his method is different because it depends entirely upon him and upon his power. He doesn't need the pool. He doesn't matter what the condition of the man is. Why? Well, the power is in him. It's all in Christ. He doesn't need any help anywhere from pools or men. He simply has it all in himself. He speaks the word and it happens. And you know that is the whole gospel. Everything that you and I need and the whole world needs at this moment is in Jesus Christ himself. It's all in him and it's nowhere else. It hath pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That's why he doesn't need any assistance, you see. It's in him. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, says Paul. Why? Oh, it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. It's all in the gospel. He doesn't need the help of the philosophers and the great religious geniuses and all the other people that we are hearing so much about. He doesn't need any help from Hinduism or Buddhism or Confucianism. They cannot help it. It's all here and he needs no assistance. It's all in him. He is God's wisdom and God's power unto salvation. So you see he can turn his back to the pool and look at the men and say, now I'm not come to help you into the pool, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk, and the man did it. 
It is all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he has done is he has come to give it to us. What do you mean, says someone, by saying that it's all in him? Well, let me tell you what I mean is this. Your salvation and mine is perfectly in Jesus Christ. He came into this world and he took on human nature, your nature and mine, upon himself. He has become a man like us in order to rescue us and redeem us. And what has he done? Well, he first of all gave a perfect obedience to God and to God's holy law. He has obeyed it absolutely perfectly. Ah, yes, but there's the problem of my past sins, my guilt and my shame. Do you know he took that upon himself also? He took them upon him. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. He alone, he took them, he's borne them, he's taken the punishment, he stood for the guilt, and God has punished your sins in him. He's carried them away, he's blotted them out, he's risen again. And he gives that his own nature, to all who believe on him. He has conquered death and the grave. He has brought life and immortality to light through his gospel. Now then, you see, it's all in him. He has done this for men. He's kept the law. God is satisfied. The law is satisfied. Sin has been punished as God said it would be. And he has conquered the last enemy and he has risen triumphant and he has ascended back into heaven. Very well, the whole of salvation is in him. So he comes to you in this meeting and he says, Son, daughter, wouldest thou be made whole? Would you like to know that your sins are forgiven? That they've been blotted out and carried away? Would you like to have a new nature? Would you like to have the Holy Spirit in you and strength and power? Would you like to be able to smile in the face of death and laugh at it almost and know that you're going to heaven beyond it and to glory indescribable? Would you like all that? If you would, I can give it you all. You see, he hasn't come just to teach us how to save ourselves. He's come to give us salvation. It's a free gift. He's got it. He's earned it. He's merited it. He possesses it. He has the power to pronounce us forgiven, to pronounce us as born again, to pronounce us as reconciled to God and heirs of God and everlasting bliss. As he spoke to that man, he's speaking, I say it with reverence to the glory of God, he's speaking through my lips at this moment. And he is telling you that you can be forgiven and reconciled to God and born again and receive a new nature. When, when you say, can I have this? Well, you notice the answer in verse 9. And immediately, immediately, the man was made whole. He didn't prescribe a course of treatment for him. He didn't tell him, now you do this and do it regularly and soon you'll begin to feel better and you'll get better and better and stronger and stronger. No, no, that's man, that's medicine, that's psychology, that's the world and its methods. That isn't Christ. Immediately. 
You will never make yourself a Christian. And you never ask to make yourself a Christian. Can't make ourselves Christian. Christ makes us Christian. And you see, because it is he who makes us Christian, we can be Christians now, this minute. You don't wait a second. You don't say, ah, let me go home and consider it. Well, you can consider it if you like, but you'll still have to come back to him. You say, but let me make myself a little bit better. What's the point of that? When all your better is of no value, and he gives you all. But you see that because it's all in him, and because he gives it as freely as a gift, we can have it here and now at this moment, immediately. If you don't see that you can become a Christian this minute, you don't see it at all. If you see it, you can see that you can have it now. Immediately. He spoke and the man arose immediately and was made whole. Let not conscience make you linger or a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he required is to see your need of him. That's all. Have you seen? Wilt thou be made whole? Have you got the desire within you to be made whole? You know, I believe that when our Lord asked this man the question, he created the desire within him. The man had given it all up. It was hopeless. He was filled with despair. Thirty-eight years, always somebody else. Ah, what's the use of anything? But when our Lord asks the question, the desire is kindled. You know, as the Lord speaks to you, he creates the desire within you. We're all dead in trespasses and sins, but when he speaks, he quickens us. He makes us see our sin. He makes us see our condition. He makes us see how lost we are. He makes us see death coming and the judgment, and we are alarmed. He's created the desire. And as we look at him, we begin to see the hope. He can do it. Well, that's the next thing. Do you trust in him? Do you believe in him? The message of the cross, says Paul, is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us that are saved, it is the power of God. Do you believe, therefore, this evening, that the Son of God came into the world because he loved you, and he died on the cross, for your sins has borne your punishment. Do you believe that? Do you know you're forgiven at this moment in Christ? That he came to give you new life which you can have now? Do you realize it? Do you believe it? Do you trust him? Well, obey him, believe, rise up and walk and prove that you're a new man in Christ Jesus. Do you see the need? Do you believe him? And finally, let me urge you to do so by saying this. Take these terrible words again in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. And I would say the same tonight. You know what life in this world is because of sin. It's bad enough, isn't it? But there's something worse. And that is hell. And hell is spending eternity, not only as you are now and as the world is, but much worse. 
all this intensified beyond imagination. A worse thing may come unto you. Very well then I say in the light of that. Look at this blessed person this evening, the Son of God who unseen is here and who speaks his word. He tells you that he is the Son of God. He came into the world to save you, to die for you and your sins on Calvary's cross, to give you forgiveness, to reconcile you to God. To give you a new nature, a new birth. To make a new man or a new woman of you and a child of God. And a joint heir with him. Of the bliss and the glory. Passing our highest imagination. That will be the lot of all. Who having heard him. Have believed on him. And received his power. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved now, immediately. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.